the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Here's a wild idea. Should ESCOM announce plans to start Bitcoin mining as a way to generate revenue? Before you pull your hair out at the suggestion, hear me out. Bitcoin mining is a highly profitable but energy-intensive business. The lead time for full commercial operation of a Bitcoin mine is a matter of months. The ability of Bitcoin mining hardware to start up and shut down in less than 60 seconds can allow ESCOM to constantly run its generation fleet at its most profitable supply profile. These are not my words. They belong to Carl de Yacher, research group leader for distributed ledger technology at CSIR. ESCOM has an installed generation capacity of 47,000 megawatts, 70% of which comes from coal-fired plants. One of ESCOM's biggest challenges is to meet the winter peak demand of around 34,000 megawatts, which is 80% of its installed baseload capacity. ESCOM has to plan to meet peak demand, which occurs about four times a day during the early morning and evening hours when the demand is highest. The rest of the time, the plants are running at a loss. This is where the Bitcoin mining suggestion comes in. Well, joining us to discuss this further is the author of this article himself, Carl Diacha. Carl, first of all, before we get into this wild-eyed suggestion of yours that uh, we use ESCOM for Bitcoin mining, you're involved with distributed ledger technology at CSR. When did you get involved in this area of Bitcoin or distributed ledger blockchain? When did you start? Blockchain technology specifically sparked my interest back in 2016 um, when I built an Ethereum mining rig at the time. And I was fascinated by this idea of this computer actually generating money, you know, revenue. At the time, I was actually still involved at ESCOM. I'm an engineer originally, and uh, I started my career at ESCOM. But after discovering blockchain technology, I quickly decided, you know, that's my future, it's my passion. And since then, um, I've spent all my available time in blockchain technology, first as an educator for many years, then later as a software developer. And now I spend my days at the CSIR doing cutting-edge research into this um, industry. Were you successful as a crypto miner? Was it Ethereum you were mining? Yeah. So (laughs) at the time, I don't really think it was much of a success. I mean, I did enjoy the technology side of it, but there was a lot of practical consideration at the time, which I didn't really take account for when I started this endeavor. So I think just in general, it did take a lot of time to upskill myself in that. I think the skills that I learned through that was good, but it was perhaps a little bit less profitable. There was a few expensive lessons that I learned through that entire process. But, you know. And, and uh, those lessons would have been in the area of what? Having to upgrade your rigs every now and again to, exactly, to get yeah, the latest of the best. <laughs> rigs burnt out, you know, a lot of maintenance in that. And I think if I look back at the time or the money that I spent on the actual rig, if I just bought some Bitcoin or Ethereum at that time, because at that time Bitcoin was 12,000 Rand, you know. You didn't buy I, I did buy a little bit, but, you know, I spent the bulk of my savings at the time on the mining rig. Uh-huh. So it would have turned out a little bit differently, probably a, a lot more profitable if I actually just bought. And, and today, do you own crypto? Oh, yes, I do. Let me put it this way. I don't know any, any other forms of savings. To me, the macro... Everything. Are you maximalist? You, Completely everything you got in, uh, in cryptos? I think... Uh, I won't say a crypto maximalist, but a fiat minimalist. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we can talk about that in a minute. All right. I want to I want to get onto this idea of yours that, um, and you you have a, a blog where you write up some very interesting articles, and we can 
mention that in a bit. People might think you're a bit off your rocker when you talk about using ESCOM's slack periods to mine Bitcoin. But you do spell out a fairly interesting case for that. So maybe just tell people why you say this could work. All right. So let's start what about explain what is Bitcoin mining. So Bitcoin mining is essentially a process where electricity is burned in exchange for newly created Bitcoin. Now, there are millions of computers around the world that's participating in this process. It's completely permissionless if you want to mine Bitcoin. You don't require an application to do this. You know, it's, it's very decentralized and it's global. Now, this basically involves solving complex mathematical problems, which secures the network. That, that's the process of mining itself. That's the process of mining yeah. itself. Now, we know that this protocol is amazing for many reasons. All right? So it enables censorship resistance, global money, instant neutral settlement all across the world without any discrimination and basically almost for free. Uh, but let's ignore that macro thesis for now. And we simply isolate this network to expose only one characteristic, and that is the ability to turn electricity into revenue. And if you isolate the Bitcoin network towards only that, a little black box, and then we take ESCOM and we do the same, and we simplify its mandate to be a generator of a product, which is electricity, and trying to sell this product to the highest bidder. So we have these two black boxes, and they satisfy each other's requirements with absolute perfection then. So what I'm saying then is I don't expect ESCOM to buy into the macro thesis of Bitcoin, which we just explained, which is amazing. But, you know, that's perhaps a little bit too adventurous for a utility like ESCOM to become a, a speculator or a hodler or anything like that. What I'm saying is let's take the Bitcoin mining network. We model it as a client, a user of electricity. And then we get some fascinating things out of that. We realize that this simulated client is the absolute perfect client. It pays you immediately. It uses electricity and the money can be in your bank account tonight for the electricity that it uses. The, the rands, not the Bitcoin, the rands or the dollars. You know exactly how much is going to pay because you can work that out. Everything about the Bitcoin protocol, all the numbers is completely transparent and you can calculate to the nearest rand how much is going to pay or to the nearest cent how much is going to pay you for a kilowatt hour. It does not mind if you shut it down. And this is a, an amazing characteristic. And I'll, I'll get back to that. It acts as a buyer of last resort, effectively. Because it will take any amount of electricity that you have available. It will buy that. It doesn't matter how much. There's no contractual agreements with this simulated client. Um, and if you have it, you can, they'll buy it. If you don't have it, it won't buy it. And it can pay you. It pays you a lot. So this simulated client, the Bitcoin network, will, well, when I last calculated, which was a couple of weeks ago, it pays you more than two rand a kilowatt hour. Now, I know this is nuanced, and you shouldn't quote me on my numbers, but more than two rand a kilowatt hour, as far as I'm aware at least, from all the information that's in the public domain, that is more than any existing client of ESCOM. No one pays ESCOM more than two rand a kilowatt hour for its Especially power. Especially in, in off-peak hours. Yes, exactly. So, you know, so to me, if you take all these characteristics, it is it is the perfect client. Now, let me return to this one characteristic especially, and that is the ability to shut this mine off. So, you know, ESCOM 
frequently runs into supply problems. We know that. And ESCOM has agreements with some of its heavy electricity users, which is an industry term, like mines, aluminium smelters, and so on, in order to switch them off without notice. And just for that privilege, ESCOM gives them their power at sometimes even below cost. So a Bitcoin mining network can act as a user of electricity, which is completely um, flexible. So ESCOM would be able to shut down this client, just like they do with aluminum smelters, some of their largest clients like aluminum smelters and mines, without any notice. Okay, now the question a lot of people will be asking is how this would help with the load shedding crisis because you know pe- people are looking at this and they say oh, come on the the escom cannot even keep the lights on you know for a full day how is this going to solve the load shedding problem what would your answer be to that yeah so i do get that question a lot when i talk about this thesis of mine so the fact that this bitcoin mining client is so flexible the fact that the electricity provider let's say escom in this case can control this load or this demand of electricity within milliseconds opens up a lot of opportunities to the provider. So I first want to get a little bit technical here about how the electricity grid actually works. So the electricity grid needs to be balanced between the supply of electricity and the demand of electricity at all times. And this is called the frequency. So the frequency of our electricity grid in South Africa is 50 hertz. Now if the supply of electricity grows and this balance is disturbed, between the supply and demand, then the frequency increases. So it goes above 50%. If the demand of electricity, the usage of electricity increases without the supply of electricity increases, then then this frequency drops to below 50 hertz. Now, you can imagine that we don't have a supply problem. Like we never supply more than what we use. And there's a simple explanation for that. And that is because ESCOM can control the supply of electricity with absolute precision. They have control over their generators, you know, so they can just ramp down their generators if the usage of electricity goes down as well in order to keep this balance. But the other way around is much, much more complex. You cannot really control the demand or the usage of electricity at any point in time, not effectively. You can do that, and that's what ESCOM does with load sharing. But, you know, it's a very inefficient process. You have to physically switch off a neighborhood or a city or a town. ESCOM needs to account for the possibility of one of their generators tripping at any point in time. So even during load shedding, they keep a buffer. They keep a a reserve margin of electricity available for if their generators trip. Because if a generator trip, you need to restore the balance between supply and usage within seconds. Otherwise, you get a... The consequences of not restoring this balance is a complete blackout. So, or a grid collapse. It's also called a grid collapse, which means that the entire grid trips and it takes between two and four weeks to restart this. I'm sure you've read about that. I recently read that the insurance policies are now excluding that from their risks. So that's a very big possibility. Now, what I'm saying is that a Bitcoin network miner, let's call it a mining farm, that's the industry term. A Bitcoin mining farm can operate within this reserve margin. And the reason for that is because it is a user of electricity that can be controlled with absolute precision within milliseconds. You can ramp up the electricity usage of a Bitcoin mining farm or ramp it down within milliseconds. Or you can completely trip it if you need to, or at least trip sections of that. So 
I'm not sure how big is this reserve margin that ESCOM has, but I assume it's somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 megawatts. So that's a lot of power that they have available, even during load shedding. And there are no other users of electricity. There's no other client that can operate within that reserve margin because no other client, whether it's in a mine or an aluminum smelter or any other heavy user of electricity, likes being shut down. If you shut down an aluminum smelter, which by the way ESCOM does from time to time, then it takes days to restart that aluminum smelter. And the agreement with those clients of ESCOM is that ESCOM would subsidize their loss in production just for that privilege in order to shut them down without notice. So what I'm saying is that there's a client that can operate within this reserves margin that you can control, that'll pay you more than two rand a kilowatt hour, that would not mind being shut down, can start up again in minutes. I mean, all of these characteristics is amazing. It is, it is a no-brainer that Bitcoin mining can be used as a means to generate revenue. Has anybody at ESCOM approached you about this wild idea of yours and said, you know, we should talk? No, and I think, I don't want to blame them. They're busy with important stuff. They're busy fighting fires all the time for the last, I don't know, the last decade probably, you know. So there's no really real out-of-the-box thinking. I think in the early ESCOM, you know, when, when there was less firefighting and more innovation that happened, the idea would have gotten a lot more attention back then. But if you think about Bitcoin, it doesn't always have a good rep in the boardrooms. And that's exactly the message that I'm trying to get across, is that don't worry about the macro thesis. That is cool, but leave that for us techies then. Isolate or model the Bitcoin network as a user of electricity only, and look at it that way. Then the thesis and the outcome changes entirely. It's an interesting idea, but is it within ESCOM's mandate to deviate from the generation of electricity and transmission? Could it actually do this? You know, I think that it would definitely require some out-of-the-box thinking. ESCOM's mandate is wide. It's very, very diverse. It's not only simply generating electricity and selling it to the highest bidder. I do appreciate that. They do have ESCOM Enterprises, which looks at this kind of thing. True, they do. And, you know, I know back in the day, I used to work on a project called Underground Coal Gasification, which is also very, very innovating. So I know that this kind of thinking, I don't know if it's still there, but it used to be there inside ESCOM. But I think as long as it doesn't take away any of ESCOM's ability to keep supplying power, we're not saying mine Bitcoin while you are switching off other parts because it's more profitable, anything like that. I'm saying this can be added to their mandate. This can be done in parallel towards achieving their entire mandate, specifically because you can mine inside the reserve margin that ESCOM has available at any time. Okay, now it does pose an interesting idea that all of these people who are investing in solar farms at the moment, could they not also, rather than feed electricity back into the grid, which they're trying to do, and and some metros are further advanced on this program than others, could they not turn that into a Bitcoin farm? I think this is an excellent use case for independent power producers. And as soon as the word goes out, I think it's an obvious one. The reason being so difficult to connect to the grid for various reasons. There's a lot of red tape to connecting to the grid. I mean, they, those red tape are now being removed slowly but surely. But yes, absolutely, it is a the ideal client for an independent power producer, a solar farm, any mining or any facility that has excess power. You know, they can sell it to the Bitcoin network at much, much more than what the prevailing prices are of 
electricity utilities around the world currently paying for these uh, excess electricity. So yes, I think it's a it's an absolute no-brainer. What about residences? For example, a lot of people have now bought these solar panels and they've got the inverters and the batteries. Could they not throw on a few more panels and add another battery or two and start mining at home? For sure. You know, the the mining equipment, the computers that actually mine Bitcoin that tells these electricity or uses this electricity, it's, it's called ASICs. And they range anything from about 2 kilowatt per machine to about 4 or 5 kilowatt per machine. So it, it is a bit noisy and it generates quite a lot of heat. So I know many of the colder countries, the northern hemisphere, in winter they use Bitcoin miners in their homes to heat it up. So in South Africa, I'd say you probably just have to have, you, you can't do it in a one-bedroom flat. You're gonna, it's going to drive you mad. But if you do have the space uh, available and you can accommodate a little bit of noise, then it can actually become a profitable or lucrative strategy. Do you have any ideas what the, the cost of a rig is these days? The you rigs, see about 30000 or so. Yeah, it's around there. So there's a big second-hand market as well. For them, oh. um, but they're not that efficient. They're, they're less efficient. Yes. Yeah. So it depends. Also, you, you probably need to run the numbers to see if you can get by. If it makes sense for you to run with less efficient rigs, you know, some people do because they have excess power that just goes to waste, and then basically any machine can generate you a good return. Uh, but if your power does cost you something, then you just have to run the numbers to see where's the sweet spot. All right. You spoke recently at the Blockchain Africa conference about South Africa's grey listing by the Financial Action Task Force. Virtual assets, they do open significant loopholes for money laundering and terrorist financing, and that's the reason that we were grey listed. We haven't closed those loopholes fast enough. These loopholes can be closed if the authority uses the technology to its full potential. This is what you were saying at the Blockchain Africa conference. Explain how those loopholes can be closed using this blockchain technology. This relates to the work that we're doing at the CSIR. And you're right. So the Financial Action Task Force published their evaluation of South Africa recently. And they published basically 40 recommendations or maintained 40 recommendations. And South Africa was only compliant in, I think, three of them. And non-compliant in, I can't even exactly remember how many now, but it's more than 10. And... One of the recommendations that South Africa was non-compliant to was recommendation 15, which is related to new technologies, fintech technologies or virtual assets, as the FATF calls them. And not only the FATF, but the FATF, the Bank of International Settlements, the World Bank, and the IMF, all of these global watch bodies, publishes very, very detailed guidelines on how to achieve compliance to their recommendations. And I now deeply studied the FATF's guidelines specifically after South Africa was greylisted and found that many of these things have very practical engineering solutions. And we've been working on these solutions actually for a while at the CSR. These include extracting metadata from transactions that happens on open public blockchains like Bitcoin and then processing this data in order to comply to many of the existing regulations that we have in our financial systems. For instance... Yes, censorship cannot be applied directly to a currency like Bitcoin. You know, and censorship, by the way, is a very useful tool that regulators have uh, to their possession. Um, not only regulators, but all kinds of law enforcement authorities. I, I think just before you continue on oh, yeah. that, just explain what you mean when you bring up the word censorship in reference to Bitcoin. So 
Censorship basically means the freezing of your account or stopping you in any way from actually transacting using financial systems. So censorship is a tool that's used by authorities all around the world uh, in order to stop illicit activity or bad activity, financial activity. Ultimately, they put illicit activity into two buckets, which is money laundering and terrorist financing. Now, if you, for instance, going to open a website and you're going to sell some illicit goods in there, um, or you open a loophole for laundering money in some way or another, the very first thing that's going to happen is you're going to lose your access to to your financial service. So you're going to lose your access to process payments and to make payments. Yeah, the bank will cut you off. The bank will cut you off. Or whether you use PayPal or MasterCard directly or whatever, your account will be frozen within hours. So it's a very, very effective mechanism. Long before your law enforcement is even involved, you'll be shut off from the system. Now, that is not possible with Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin mining network will mine your transaction and settle your transaction no matter what or who you are. So it takes away this mechanism from the authorities. But what we're arguing at the CSR is that although that is the case, there's a lot of other things that you can do with Bitcoin, which you cannot do with conventional financial mechanisms. So for instance, every single transaction that happens on Bitcoin is completely open and transparent and auditable by anyone in the world. Anyone in the world can become an auditor. You don't need to have a subpoena to get someone's financial statements. You can get it with a click of a button within seconds. You can get their entire financial history. Now, so even though there's no censorship mechanism, there are other mechanisms to ensure compliance to conventional regulations, but it requires a bit of a paradigm shift from the authorities in order to use these mechanisms. And it requires them to have very, very specialized tools um, and software. And that's exactly what we're building at the CSR. We're building these tools, which is basically taking all of this massive amount of data that's available on the blockchains. Let's take Bitcoin, for example. It's seven to 10 transactions that happens every second all around the globe. So we're taking these data, we're processing it, we're looking for patterns that indicate money laundering or terrorist financing or a few other things as well. And then our software provides the authorities or the user of the software with these patterns and with these indications and notifications for when there's a sign of an illicit transaction that happens. One of the things that uh, I thought, you, you, you're saying that you can pretty much identify anybody on, on the blockchain, but not everybody who owns Bitcoin has been KYC'd, in other words, has been on-ramped by a, a reputable firm. They could have been gifted Bitcoin, they could have acquired it on a decentralized exchange where they don't really need to, you know, you don't even need to know the guy's email address. How are you going to identify those people? So basically how it works on a very technical level is you follow the money you follow the trails of the Bitcoin that you cannot identify up to a point where you can identify them. So there's a very good example that I very much like. And that is uh, back in 2016, there was an exchange called Bitfinex that was hacked for, in today's valuation, it was hacked for about $4.5 billion. And the hackers sat on that Bitcoin and no one knew who they were, but it was monitored. That Bitcoin was monitored as it flowed. And there was a couple of transactions that happened so they knew during the, the they years. knew the addresses and they're just waiting for the first they just movement waited. out. Right. And then <laughs> and then it's actually quite a funny story. These hackers went and bought a five hundred dollar Walmart gift card <laughs> from their four and a half billion dollar stash. 
And they gave up on a Gmail address. Uh-huh. And that Gmail address at the gift card shop was enough to track them down. Within hours after that transaction, they were arrested. Where were they arrested? In the U.S. They were Americans? They were Americans, yes. So That's, you know, that's, pretty, that's pretty smart. You know, now I'm comparing that to our own cases here in South Africa. Let's take the Guptas, for example. I mean, how many years it's been? I'm sure that their complete financial records are not available yet because you have to subpoena the, the authorities, the law enforcers has to subpoena cross-jurisdiction, which is incredibly difficult. It can take years for these statements to be accumulated and acquired and processed. And we can have all of your transactional history, your Bitcoin transactional history, within seconds. Were you asked to look at Mirror Trading International and Johann Steinberg? I was at the time. I assisted a couple of lawyers back in the day with some chain analysis. And, and were you able to help them? To a certain extent, yes. Uh, you know, at the time I was doing a lot of it manually. So I didn't have the, have the software available. So I just literally sat for weeks and tracked it manually, which uh, I wish I had the right software at that time because, uh, you know, I could have done it in seconds, which we do have now. And that's exactly one of the reasons why I so much wanted the CSR to go along those routes, because I know what a pain it is to do it manually, but I know it's possible and I know the process. And, you know, if we had this kind of software available to our South African authorities at the time, we could have stopped that scheme in its tracks because we would have immediately be notified that they are sending Bitcoin to Forex providers. You know, we could have exactly known where their funds are at any point in time. And red lights would have flashed immediately at that time. And are the authorities in this country aware that the software is now available and they can use it? We are making them aware. So they have been aware. So when I say the authorities, I mean the regulators, financial regulator, which consists of the FSCA, the FIC, the National Treasury, National Competition Commission, uh, the SARP, so the SARSH. So they have been using software to a certain extent. What about the police? Yes, the police as well, although they are only starting out with it. I think the, the, the regulators, the National Prosecuting Authority, the, uh, especially the Asset Forfeiture Unit, they are starting out with it, but very, very limited at this stage, as far as I'm aware, at least. Um, I might be wrong. But they've been using products developed mainly by the, the big players in America, the Cypher Trace, Chainalysis, Elliptic, those kind of guys. And what I've been telling them is that, you know, This can be a strategic asset to the state. I think we should move away from using these companies in the global north. Let's build our own products in South Africa, have this data available. We stay the custodian of this data instead of us just analyzing the reports from the global north. CSR being a state-owned research institute. Perfect match. Any product, I guess, that comes out, it belongs to the state, right? Exactly. That's my argument as well. The CSR is neutral. Its mandate is not necessarily for profit. It is, to me, it's the ideal technical partner to the national government. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about some of the work that you're doing at the CSIR. Uh, One of the interesting things that you've written about is the future of payment. Uh, That's where people are going to earn on a per second basis. And I was quite fascinated with this. Rather than get paid at the end of the month. You're, you know, you, you're working away there, you know, and, and as you're, I don't know how it will apply to a journalist or to, to most people, the idea that, you know, like every five minutes, money will be landing in your account. 
I imagine it's such a fascinating idea that it would get productivity to levels that you've never seen before. I, I, that really kind of, the light bulb went on for me when I read this. Talk about that and some of the projects you're busy with. So that specifically relates to this project that we're building inside the metaverse. So we, we partnered with our colleagues, which is the VR, the virtual reality and XR team, which also sits under the same roof as us at the CSR. And they built a metaverse platform and we then incorporated the wallet system that settles payments um, every second, actually, every second inside this metaverse. And where this comes from is this notion of money changing. And the future of money, you can map that directly towards the evolution of that information actually took in our lives. So back in the day, we used to download information and we used to hoard it, and we used to consume it in bulk, if I can call it that. Today, that doesn't happen. You know, you don't download anything. Everything in, on your devices is streamed. And we believe that money is evolving in the same way. So currently, we're transacting in batches. So you know, your debit order goes off once a month. You get your salary every month. Perhaps you do some reporting every quarter or every year as an entity or as a commercial entity. And we believe that money is evolving away from that to also become a streaming mechanism for settling payments the same way that we're currently streaming information and that you will be paid your salary from the moment you open up your laptop to the moment you close it every second and you'll be paying for your insurance for instance from the moment you switch on your car to the moment you switch it off every second the payment happening from your car maybe even towards the insurance provider. So we built a proof of concept exactly for that and in this metaverse that we built at the CSR you can walk into a room and perhaps you want to watch a concert inside this metaverse, then you will start paying every second while you watch the concert. And the moment you walk out, then the payment stops. So everything happens on a subscription basis using the Bitcoin Lightning Network as a settlement layer. And none of the things that we do in this metaverse is actually just bought in bulk. So we're working on that concept now. And it's exactly for the reason that I mentioned, and that is where that to prove that that is the future of money and the future of payments. Everything also need to mention that everything also happens on a global basis, you know, so there's no jurisdictional borders. You can settle payments to anywhere in the world instantly for free 24-7. How would that work with a project which is, um, you, you already have a kind of a, Sort of a staggered payment system rather than a streaming payment system. If you're an engineer, for example, you know, you've got certain milestones, you deliver on those milestones, then you get paid. Uh, but if those milestones are not delivered, you're talking about sort of where you're selling hours as yes. a streaming service. A lot of companies say that that's fine, but, you know, I would like to pay for product, for deliverables. True. Again, let's create a parallel back to information again, you know. So if you send an email, you know, your email is not streamed every letter. <laughs> so, you know, you type your email, you draft it, you type it, and then you send it. So that can also be seen as a bulk processing of information because you first accumulate all this information and then you send it. But I think the vast majority of the Internet and the vast majority of our consumption of information these days is through streaming. And that's exactly what payments uh, will look like in future as well. How far away is this future? Yeah, that's a difficult one because I know I'm right. But if you're right too early, then you are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I think… Is it I, 10 years, if 5 I, years? You know, if I read books like uh, The Sovereign Individual, The Fourth Turning, 
um, and Ray Dalio's cyclical thesis as well. It all seems to converge around the year 2030. So I think the year 2030 or thereabouts is going to be major. There's going to be a major shift in the way that society operates. And I think a lot of things are going to change in the 30s. So I'll go with that. I'll okay. say in about 10 years. All right. <laughs> okay, last question. We are running out of time. Decentralized finance. It's something we've discussed on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast quite a bit. It already exists. This is not something new. It's been around for several years, but it's an infant industry. And in the future, we'll see far more opportunities for collateralized lending and uncollateralized lending. Now, that's quite interesting in the crypto space because uncollateralized lending, that also does exist. Uh, they call it flash loans. You're, you're, you're borrowing for a millisecond or a couple of seconds, but it's all tied to a, a transaction which is sort of self-closing, right? Take us into the future and how you see DeFi changing the financial world. Decentralized finance is an absolutely fascinating concept. And, you know, I think whereas Bitcoin threatened at least a subset of banking and financial infrastructure, um, at least with regards to perhaps payments and store of value, uh, decentralized finance threatens every single aspect of financial services that we know. You know, everything from, like you said, collateralized lending, uncollateralized lending, insurance, advanced trading mechanisms. It, it enables decentralized exchanges. And I think that the world is really converging to that point. And, you know, it's exploding behind the scenes. I don't think a lot of people, or at least the right people in the corporate boardrooms are really taking notice of this yet. And where I see this going, if we just look at recent precedent, is that the global, if I can tie this back to regulation again, because it does play a big role, recent precedent shows that the regulators, at least the global watchdogs, are starting to notice decentralized finance protocols, and they're trying to clamp down on it, and they're doing so successfully for those decentralized protocols that is what we call DINO. That's an acronym for decentralized in name only. And that developers and those with administrative keys towards the administrative access towards these decentralized protocols um, are being held accountable for what happens there. So I think the future of DeFi is more decentralized in order to, you know, really be sustainable because we've seen now that non-decentralized DeFi is not sustainable. So I think that the future, and that's very, very exciting to me, because that's where we need to end up with. If decentralized yeah, finance, when you say non-decentralized, you're talking about these the centralized exchanges, specifically as not sustainable. Centralized exchanges, perhaps, but those that's kind of in the middle. You know, those that pretends to be DeFi, but they are actually centralized. You know, there's certain aspects. This might be a little bit technical, but there's certain aspects of Maker, the Maker protocol that's decentralized. You know, there's a lot of aspects on the Binance Smart Chain, for instance, that's decentralized. And that, I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think that's feasible, especially if you look at the movements from these international watchdogs and the actions that they are taking. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the failures have all happened in the, the centralized space, exactly. right? Because humans mm -hmm. are prone to error. Yes. And, and that is what we have seen. We've seen it with the Terra Luna. It wasn't an algorithmic failure. It was a failure in concept from the very beginning. And FTX, you know, it's outright fraud. Yeah. By the looks of it, he hasn't been convicted, but it's, it's quite clear that uh, money was misappropriated. This sounds like quite an exciting future that you, you're postulating here. 
And I would say that um, we've got to get you back on again. Uh, I, I think some of these topics are worthy of far greater exploration, you know, the future of payments, decentralized finance. So I, I want to thank you for coming on and uh, really pleased that uh, you made it and we're going to talk again in the future. Thank you, Kieran, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.